Welcome in, everyone. It is Thursday, January 27th, 2022. Uh, I am your host, Mark Real, and you are watching State of the Family Courts. Uh, tonight, we are going to have a first. Uh, we've been doing this show for about six months, and this is the first time that we will have a non-attorney on the show as our guest. Uh, but I think it's probably going to be one of our more interesting conversations. Um, tonight, we welcome uh, Dr. Robert Simon, uh, who is a psychologist, uh, acts as an expert witness, and has a very unique perspective um, and in terms of domestic violence, parental alienation, um, referring to it in a refuse-resist um, dynamic. So, uh, Dr. Simon, thank you so much for coming on. How are we doing um, on the island of Maui? <laughs> All is well here on Maui. Mark, thank you very much for having me. Awesome, awesome. And I, I want to tell our viewers before we hop in um, how how we met. And um, so we met in, in Orlando at American Bar Association Family Law Conference and back in the fall, back in October. And at the conference, they had two, we'll say, diametrically opposing panel discussions, one on domestic violence and one on parental alienation. And there was one individual who got into arguments, we'll say, with, with both sides of the aisle and um, kind of had the panelists on both sides talking in circles. So um, it, 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 was, it was quite a sight to watch these people who, some of them are very respected professionals, other ones have, we'll call it shoddy research, but um, Dr. Simon was the voice of reason in both of those panels. So we've been working to get him on the show now for a couple of months and, and we're here. So um, what I want to do is we'll go ahead and we'll hop right in. And I mentioned that, that we came to know each other in a domestic violence panel and a parental alienation panel at right. a, at the American bar association conference. That's right. Uh, you view things through a different lens, the refuse resist. So, can you start out by explaining to our viewers what that viewpoint is and, and how you look at situations like this? Sure. Thank you. Um, let me say that uh, you, you describe my viewpoint as unique, and I, I, I want to say I don't think it's unique. Um, I certainly didn't invent it um, or create this point of view, and I don't think that it is uh, by any means um, a... a a, a view that's unique to me or a small group of professionals. Let me tell you what it is that that I'm talking about here. The phenomenon that we were discussing that both of these um, panels were on at the ABA meeting had to do with situations where children, after their parents split up, where children were, for, for whatever set of reason or reasons, reluctant to see a parent, rejecting a parent, refusing to see a parent, aligning with their other parent. Um, and so um, in modern sort of current thinking, forensic psychology thinking about this, we call this a resist-refuse phenomenon or resistance to post-separation uh, contact with a parent. When we see the phenomenon, well, let me, let me back up a little bit. Back in the, in the 70s and 80s, when this phenomenon was first being discussed by professionals who were seeing it in their practices, what developed around it was this concept of parental alienation, that a child is 
um, refusing to see their other parent because the, the, the part, let, let me, let me change my, the, the, the child is refusing to see parent A, often but not always the father, because parent B, often but not always the mother, is alienating the child from parent A. They're convincing the child that parent A is not good enough, is dangerous, is risky, whatever the, the source of, 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 of the negative influence is. And so when we saw children refusing or resisting seeing a parent, we, we thought in terms of, or early thinkers thought in terms of alienation. That, 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 that the parent B in my scenario set out consciously, deliberately, without a basis, without a cause, to toxify the child's relationship with their other parent. Typically, again, not always, it was the father that was the out parent, the mother that was the in parent, or to use different terms, the mother was the alienator, the father was the targeted parent. Um, well, some people disagreed with that, and they argued, no, usually when a child resists or refuses to see a parent, there's a darn good reason. And that reason is usually, if not almost always, that that parent who the child is resisting or refusing has mistreated the child or mistreated the uh, another child in the family or mistreated the mother, that there was, if you will, domestic violence. So um, I think that um, over time, as we began to work with these ideas, we began to see that these two poles, these two extremes on a continuum did not explain, frankly, did not explain a great number of our cases, maybe even a majority of our cases, that there was some other thing or things going on. So rather than characterizing these cases as alienation cases, or domestic violence cases, or green or blue or orange cases, we decided that it was best to characterize them in a broader, with a broader term that simply described what was going on without describing why it was going on. And the, and the what is, we call them resist, refuse. So we've got a child or children resisting or refusing to see a parent. That then opens up for us broad thinking. We think broadly instead of narrowly. We think about what is the source or what are the sources of the resist refuse so that there's not one assumption made about any given child, any given family about what's going on here, but rather instead of assuming that we know what's going on or characterizing it with a term that sounds like it, it, it depicts what's going on, we simply describe it by its phenomenon, resist, refuse, and then we cast a wide net. We look at multiple potential reasons for the resist, refuse, and lo and behold, we find in many of our cases that there's more than one reason for the resist, refuse, um, and that a child is, is um, uh, usually the recipient of multiple sort of forces or dynamics that are impacting them and causing them to resist, refuse. And they can include, but they don't have to include, alienation and domestic violence. So um, I think that is a much broader, more helpful, more useful 
and more accurate conceptualization because if you think narrowly, you're gonna miss a whole lot of the richness of what's going, nuance of what's going on in a family. And without capturing that, how do you intervene successfully to restore or repair that, that broken relationship? Yeah, that, that so makes, makes perfect sense. And, and I wanna be clear too, I want to be clear to our viewers too is Dr. Simon is is gender neutral. He he doesn't work exclusive with men, exclusive with women. He right. he it's he works in, in the middle there and works with both men and women in these cases. And it, it, I think good. I think it's fair to say Mark that I'm pro child. Pro child. Okay, I like my that. Pa my passion and the thing that drives me um, and keeps me in this work and that motivates me in this work is, are the children and protecting and enhancing and enriching their well-being, fostering their resilience and maximizing their adaptation um, and success in life. Fair enough, fair enough. And I, yeah. I, I think at, at its core, I think the core feeling of even the individuals who are all the way on the parental alienation side or domestic violence, that's at their core. It may just not be through the clear lens. One, one thing that, that fascinated me when we were in Orlando, um, when you were having these discussions, is the issues with looking at it through a parental alienation or looking at it through a domestic violence lens. Um, so one side argues that you first need to look for domestic violence, and that's where it needs to start. The other side says, well, we need to look at parental alienation. Uh, with the resist refuse, um, used to you, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but it's, we look at them at the same time. Can you explain the difference from maybe an individual who looks through it, looks at it through a parental alienation lens or a domestic violence lens versus yourself who you look at it at the, you can, you analyze everything at the same time. So if you have a point of view, if you're a, dom a domestic violence advocate or you're an alienation advocate and you see a resist refuse phenomenon, your mindset is. Um, to presume that, it, let's say you're an alienation advocate, to presume it's alienation unless shown otherwise. If you're a DV advocate, to presume it's DV unless shown otherwise. Um, and scientifically, and and you know, from a forensic psychology perspective, those introduce biases. There are multiple reasons children come to be disaffected from their their parent. Yes, alienation happens, it does. Although, to be honest with you, alienation is difficult to accomplish in a, in a parent-child relationship that has previously been successful. Um, so alienation is, um, it does happen, I've seen it happen in cases, but if I had a dime for every time it's been claimed that that's the source that it tur didn't turn out to be the source, um, I would be a wealthy, wealthy guy. Mm -hmm. um, so we think in terms of other things as well. One of the most common, in my experience and, and, and from the literature, and powerful reasons that children resist and refuse is because of the conflict between their parents. So when children have two parents who are at war about the child, um, that is an enormous source of strain to a child and, 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 and stress to a child. The greatest risk to children when a family separates, aside from neglect, abuse, or just really incompetent parenting, 
the greatest risk is conflict about the children into which they're drawn. And we see this going on a lot. And so what tends to happen in cases like this, that many children choose to align with one of their two parents. Let me give you a visual. So we've got a mom and a dad who are constantly at battle with each other, constantly having conflict, blaming each other, accusing each other, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm talking about? Because you and I see it in our offices every day. Mm-hmm. Think of these two parents like um, uh, two people having a pistol duel. So they're both constantly standing, facing each other with a gun pointed at one another. Okay, keep that visual in mind. Where do we want children? In, in, in Ideally, we don't want children aligned with mom. We don't want children aligned with dad. We want children in the middle that, with a good relationship with each parent. So if I'm a child and I've got dad constantly lobbing rounds at mom and I'm in the middle, I can be struck from by incoming rounds from either side. I have no safe place to, to hide. What am I going to do as a child to protect myself? I'm going to pick a parent to hide behind. I'm going to align with one of my two parents so that I can shield myself from the conflict. Well, which parent do I choose? Well, there's a lot of reasons a kid might choose a particular parent. Um, but they can be simple things and innocuous things like gender, like temperament, like um, um, one parent having more lax rules at the house or one parent having more access to financial resources and being able to buy a child more things or, 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 or afford a child more opportunities, uh, trips to Disneyland, movies, clothing, whatever it happens to be. So alignment with one parent because of the conflict between the parents is a very powerful and a very common source of resist, refuse. Um, And I want to remind you, especially for younger children, again, I'm going to give you a visual. We have all, um, well, I'm older than many of you, I'm sure, grew up with the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. Remember, and they'd be running through the desert in the Southwest and and, and, and they'd hit, you know, they'd have these kind of uh, mesas, you know, and then there'd be a big chasm between the two. And, and you'd have to jump across the mesa or fall all the way down. Well, think of it this way. When Johnny goes to transition between mom's and dad's house and there's war between the homes, every transition is a leap across that abyss, a leap across that chasm. The child is afraid they'll fall. But the the other thing that's going on in the bottom is there's a raging inferno going on and the fire and and the flames are licking at the heels of the child as they leap over the chasm. What does that child do? Says, I'm not jumping. I'm staying right where I am. That's a form of alignment. Sometimes children prefer another parent because that parent's temperament aligns more with the child's temperament. Imagine, for example, that we've got a fearful, anxious kind of fretty child and a more protective parent. Imagine we've got a child who's really rambunctious, rough and tumble, wants to get out there and do things. And we've got a parent who loves to be outdoors, loves to do all that kind of stuff. Um, Imagine a child with learning disabilities 
and a parent who's more patient or more skilled at working with the child and, and with their homework and, and, and working with the child at the child's place where they're at. Um, so that's another reason children can align. Children align because of a mentally ill parent. That's a little scary. Children align sometimes because a parent has an alcohol or a drug problem. So you can see that rather than saying, well, there's resist, refuse here, it must be alienation, it must be domestic violence, it can be a combination of factors. It can be a combination of factors. And in my experience, in most cases that I see with resist, refuse, indeed, there are a combination of factors going on. There's multiple areas that need attention. There can be a little alienation taking place. There can be a little bit of... Um, uh, uh, what we call realistic estrangement, where a child is resisting a parent because the parent is weird and makes the child uncomfortable. Um, maybe, a, you know, maybe there's some alienation going on and there's some history of verbal violence in the family. Um, so there's a lot of factors here. And, and so simple solutions are rarely accurate in these cases. Complex solutions tend to be more accurate. Unfortunately, the legal system loves simple solutions because they're fast. And the human brain loves to oversimplify in complex situations, especially when the complex situation has a very powerful emotional component to it. So yeah. we need to stay careful not to fall into these shortcuts to sort out what's going on here. And that's why I, I when... That's why I would say that my, my point of view about resist, refuse is resist, refuse. Let's see what's going on. Let's not assume what's going on. And that, I think that's that's a, a, a few minutes that's going to need to be clipped and replayed and replayed. I think <laughs> for, for me, so the number one thing, and this is the dads that come in my office and the first thing they say is I'm being alienated. Almost always there's an extreme amount of bad blood and there, there are those verbal grenades being tossed back and forth by both sides. That's right. Um, I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a case where I was like, there's parental alienation happening where there weren't though, there wasn't that friction between the two parents. You know, Mark, there's all, even in the few cases over the years, I've been doing this 37 years now. In the few cases, and I mean few, that I've seen over the years with true alienation going on, of course there's anger. That parent who feels that their children are being essentially stolen from them is going to be very angry and very hurt. Anger comes from hurt, and they're going to feel hurt and therefore angry. And then they can kind of become their own worst enemy because they will express that anger, act on that anger, and then the other parent will say to the kids, see what I told you about that? Mm -hmm. When their reaction may be entirely normal, right? Because they miss their child, because they feel their child's been taken away from them. But more often, that parent's anger is not simply reactive to what's taken place, but is a part of the dynamic that contributes to the resist refuse. Yeah, I, I think that's very, very well put. So I, I guess I'm going to ask, but before we kind of get into what you do and how you do it 
when you're, you're working with a client, when you're working with an attorney, um, I'll ask the kind of ultimate question and we'll, we'll ask both of them. When, when you step into a case and you start evaluating the situation, what is parental alienation and how do you evaluate that side of things? And then we'll go to the domestic violence side after that. Sure. Um, I think of parental alienation as deliberate, conscious attempts on the part of a parent to turn a child or children against the other parent without a rational basis. Okay. Um, it is often, um, it's often, if not, if not almost always something that the alienating parent does to meet their own emotional needs. It's not child centered. It's parent centered. It's, um, either reactive or, or um, in some ways, retro, you know, it's retribution towards the other, the, the parent that they're trying to talkify um, the child against. But it's, it's, it's basically a deliberate attempt on the part of the parent to, to alienate the children from the other parent without a, without a cause. Okay. Um, they are restricted. So, so what are some of the characteristics? Well, let me tell you about a case I did many years ago. Um, it was a, it was a child custody case. It was a relocation case. Um, the, the mother in this case wanted to move from, uh, the city that the child and the, fa the father and the family were living in to another city, uh, still in California. And, um, so I met with the mother and in my first interview with the mother, I said to the mother, tell me about what your goals are and why. And she said some things to me about why she felt the relocation was appropriate and so forth. Okay. I won't, I won't parrot what she said. Um, a few weeks later, I met the kid for the first time, bring the kid into my, into my office. And I say to the kid, um, tell me why you're here. What's going on? And the child began to parrot the mother's statements almost on a word for word basis. Okay. So one of the signs, a sign, it's not by in any means in and of itself conclusive, but a sign that alienation may be going on is when children's narratives, children's words, children's reasons, children's thinking parrots their parents thinking very closely, sometimes word for word and often express themselves in a way that is not developmentally appropriate. It might be too sophisticated, too advanced. And, and, and when you interview them and they, they may use a word and you'll say to the kids, Susie, what does that word mean? And they don't even know, okay? Another sign of a child who may be um, uh, the, the, the fallen into a, an alienating uh, dynamic is an inability to verbalize um, strengths on the part of the parent that they're rejecting or weaknesses on the part of the parent that they're aligned with. They may have difficulty recalling any pleasant memories with the parent that they're rejecting. Um, and they may have difficulty recalling any unpleasant memories with the parent that they're accepting. Um, their rejection is without ambivalence. It, it is, it is, 
it is black and white. And the reason that's important is that children, even children who are seriously mistreated by a parent, will demonstrate ambivalence about the parent who has hurt them. They'll still have a love-hate relationship with them. When, when it's well known, for example, when child welfare, CPS, goes into a home to remove a child because that child is being endangered by a parent, that most of the time, even though those children are risk and harmed, they protest leaving the parent who's harmed them. So in alienation, we see that. We see that we see the child um, kind of tied all up with a neat little ribbon in a black and white way. Um, so these are some of the these are some of the signs we see that would lead us to be more concerned that alienation may be taking place. Um, now, the other side of the street you asked me about was violence. And I want to say, first of all, that when we think about domestic violence, we also need to think very broadly. Um, many of us, if not most of us in the lay community, think about domestic violence in terms of hitting, striking, kicking, biting, slapping, uh, things like that, physical violence. Domestic violence is a whole lot more than that, okay? Yes, battering is domestic violence. Yes, slapping, biting, punching is domestic violence. But so is isolating somebody from their support system. So is verbally demeaning them in certain kinds of ways. So is uh, depriving them access to financial resources so that they can go go and do things independently so is something we call coercive control which is where we act in ways towards another person to intimidate them and make them afraid of doing anything that might upset us and results in their feeling a loss of their own agency a loss of their own efficacy a loss of their ability to act successfully in the world. So domestic violence is a very, very, very broad term. And I want to point out that um, at the be uh, I think it was last year, I can't remember exactly, but the family code was explicitly amended to include non-physical forms of domestic violence in the, in the code defining DV. Domestic violence. Yeah, 20, 2021, we had coercive control get explicitly added. Yeah. No, it was explicitly added. Not that those of us who know DV needed that to be done, because we always understood that coercive control was a domestic violence tactic. But it was not widely enough understood, so it was explicitly added by the law, so that now it must be considered. I mean, I, I, sadly enough, I've been in courtrooms where judges said, well, there, there's no DV here because the father never laid a hand on her. <laughs> so you want to just you want to pull your hair out because that's the judge. Now the judge has that instruction. So what do we do with respect to domestic violence and this assessment? Well, there's a number of screening tools, a number of screening protocols and assessment protocols available. Obviously, we ask a lot of questions. And one of the things with domestic violence that we often want to do is ask third parties things that they've seen, heard, been told. Um, we want to, when we assess domestic violence, we want to make sure to do it in a very structured and systematic way. Um, and so we use 
uh, I use different kinds of rubrics or protocols. Um, uh, there's a protocol called SAFER, SAFER. Uh, that's uh, excellent. There is um, uh, there are interview protocols put up on the National Institutes of Child Health and Development. So um, we want to see if there have been forms of of domestic violence, and it's it's we we look not only at whether it has happened, but its frequency, its duration, its intensity, and the way it, particularly with physical violence, how it's perpetrated, how likely is it to be lethal, um, and for somebody to be seriously injured or, or unfortunately killed. And as I think most people know, if if there's a a relationship between two people and one of them ends up dead, the first person the police look for is the intimate partner, right? So yeah. a lot of that kind of, those kinds of deaths can be attributable to DV as opposed to a, a stranger. Yeah, um, I think that's a big one for dads too that get involved in family court is that it does not have to be physical. And I know you, you spend quite a bit of your year in California. Out here, we have one of the more broad statutes in terms of defining what domestic violence is. So that's something that in first conversation I have is domestic violence is not hitting your soon to be ex, your ex-girlfriend, whatever it may be. There's a whole list of things that can can account for domestic violence. Well, and there's something else important about domestic violence and particularly for the audience that I think we have today, a male audience. With the exception of battery, of physical violence, domestic violence is gen it shows gender symmetry. What I mean by that is that men are as often the victims of domestic violence as are women. Yes, we are victims too. Um, when it comes to physical violence, it's much more often than not male on female for any number of reasons, not the least of which is men are stronger. Men, men are taller, men have more muscle. Men can force themselves more physically, um, but men can be victims of psychological violence, financial violence, all kinds. And, and that's important because we men, um, sometimes um, our egos get in the way. Our, 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 our male ego, our pride gets in the way of our recognizing that we're being mistreated by our spouse. Yeah. So I want to mention that to this audience, right? And here, here's the thing I see, I think most commonly is that men are the ones who are just, they are afraid to bring it up. I've had clients that have come in that, Hey, in 2018, she stabbed me. And then I declined to cooperate with the police. And now we're breaking up. And the judge is like, well, what's happened the last three or four years since you're saying you allegedly got stabbed and then failed to cooperate? Um, so, yes, men and men are reluctant to report even when it's obvious they've been physically harmed. But they often don't report the other forms of domestic violence or even recognize that they have been on the receiving end of it. Um, and while it is true from a sexual perspective that, um, um, you know, men are not typically the victims of sexual violence, they absolutely can be. 
Um, and we need to recognize that men can be a victim, a victim of sexual violence, and it doesn't need to mean rape. It, it can mean any number of different kinds of things. Um, so uh, uh, one of the things I think that's critically important when we talk about resist, refuse, and um, uh, whether domestic violence is, is at play is to remember that domestic violence is not a uniquely male issue. It is a, it is a gender symmetrical issue except for the battery piece of it. And the majority of DV in my experience that I've seen in, in my cases over the years has not been physical. I, I would tend to agree. And I'll make this statement and you can agree or disagree, but Tip, when you talk about the non-physical, the non-battery domestic violence, uh, you almost always see if one side's alleging it, usually there was some form of domestic violence being reciprocated. Well, uh, there's something we call mutual couples combat, okay, where both members of the couple when they're extremely stressed, when they're particularly angry, when they're highly frustrated, their coping skills break down and they act out and they act out physically and then it subsides and then it can reoccur and then it can subside. Um, so even physical violence has different forms, different types, if you will. Um, and um, not so. So one of the things I always get concerned about in, in my well, in my cases is if there is domestic violence that we're careful to describe the type of it. And I'm not just saying whether it's physical or not physical, financial, whatever, spiritual, emotional, but, you know, for example, a, a number of couples in the throes of separation, when the relationship is breaking down and it becomes obvious to one or both members of the couple that they need to separate or the separation is imminent, particularly when children are in the family, the stresses, the strains, the internal pressures are beyond description. And, 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 and they are the kinds of emotional, psychological pressures that, that these men and women have never experienced before because they've never been through it before. And they are profound. I, I cannot emphasize enough how powerful they are. And at times like that, people, people's coping skills break down. Right, they may throw a phone across the room. They may, they may call their spouse terrible, terrible names that they that they they've never used before. Um, they may strike their spouse or shove their spouse. Um, and it may be it may be limited to that passage in the in the history of that family where that's where that couple's falling apart, where, where the seams are being ripped. We call that separation instigated intimate partner violence, which is very different in its nature than a pattern of violence between a, a couple that's chronic and takes place over time. And so it's important to distinguish between the, the types of violence because the kinds of things that need to be done, the kinds of interventions we need to use will vary. For example, in a separation instigated domestic uh, intimate partner violence situation, the answer is to get into two separate homes, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
and and it's very very and, and it's very time limited there it's very unlikely to to, to to reoccur as opposed to the answer being filing a domestic violence restraining order and getting a restraining order against somebody that is a very um important tool that we can use but it needs to be used in cases where the likelihood of ongoing violence is really present so we've got separation instigated violence we've got something we call um, mutual couples violence, which is these episodes of inappropriate behavior that is bilateral, takes place on the part of both parties. Um, and it's part of a chronic cycle. Um, and again, it's usually, it often is bilateral. Um, what we really worry about is the kind of violence that is more chronic coercive control and um, typically unidirectional, one partner against the other where that way of coping with dissatisfaction, frustration, being told no, not being in charge, um, is very much baked into that person's personality. And they don't have the rule, the stop rule in them. And by the way, it, like for example, in the separation instigated violence, after the, thrown is uh, the phone is thrown across the room or, or, or the horrible insult is hurled at the other person, there's regret, there's guilt, there's true remorse. Okay. In coercive controlling violence, there's only remorse because I got caught in a mic at consequences. Right. And that's and why we, need, that's why we need the restraining orders. And and I think I mean being and being representing men, I find myself probably 90% of the time defending domestic violence restraining orders. And it's almost exclusively the phenomena you describe as kind of the, the the lack of coping skills and going through the separation. And I think from go and, and I'll, I'll finish this thought and then I'll pass it to you. And I find that what it ends up doing is when, when we look at those situations and I'm not going to comment on California law, um, but, and how they deal with it. But um, I, I find it cheapens and it puts individuals who are in that, are pure are victims of domestic violence and there's extreme risk of it continuing it cheapens there when they tell people what's going on when they report these instances and a lot of times you have situations where we don't get the nuance of say someone like yourself laying out what's going on it, it, it's um the unfortunate thing is that there are many there are unfortunately too many situations where um, a spouse needs to be protected mm -hmm. there's also too many situations where there is an unfortunate episode once twice between a couple and and one of the parties goes to court with a domestic violence restraining order as a tactic to gain the upper hand in the custody battle because of the way that california law is um, what I find is when, when, when an attorney is defending a, a domestic violence restraining order and it appears to the attorney that the type of DV is likely not the coercive control DV or the real chronic DV, it can be helpful to bring an expert in to educate the court at the domestic violence hearing about the typologies of domestic violence. Now, that expert will not be able to tell the court this is the kind of violence in this family because they will not have done a their own evaluation but it's many judges find it helpful when experts can explain to them 
that different kinds of that domestic violence with different dynamics needs different responses from the court and they want to deliver the effective response so yeah, experts think, can be really helpful thing. when your clients you know have the resources to hire an expert yeah which whole whole nother issue with family court and what goes on there is the resources but absolutely. um absolutely but now I, I, I want to transition and I really want the viewers to get an idea because I think um, for a lay person or someone who finds themselves in family court, the idea of an expert or going through situations where there's DV allegations, domestic violence, um, parental alienation allegations, and then it's brought up of we could bring this expert in that'll be able to help us work through these issues and educate the court. So I kind of want to educate the viewers on what you do and how it works in their case. And full disclosure, you and I have never worked together professionally at this point. Um, so, and we've never had these discussions. I have worked with other professionals. Um, so none of this is scripted, none of it, anything. <laughs> I, I'm going to be asking honest questions. Um, so just by way of, of adding to that disclosure, Mark, if I recall, there's been one one case where the client called me and said, I want to hire you as my expert. And I told the client, I don't get hired directly by um, litigants. I get hired by attorneys. Who's your attorney? And he told me you were his attorney. And, yes. and, and, and you called me and we talked about my being hired. I don't think I have been hired on that case. Um, so, no. you know, we've never worked together. We have no pending cases and. Um, this is all, um, just, just two independent people thinking and talking out loud. Yeah. It, it was, it was kind of funny when he, uh, when he came to me and he's like, Hey, I talked to someone and I really want to look into hiring him. I was like, okay, who is it? And then he says your name. And I'm like, ironically, I just emailed him yesterday. I'm trying to get, him, <laughs> get it set up on the show. That's so, right. That's, um, right. That's exactly right. That's exactly so, right. Obviously, so client doesn't go directly to you. It is the attorney. So we'll, we'll right. use we'll use my example. I'm the attorney, and we'll, we'll obviously since none of that's moved forward. So I send you an email. I say, "Hey, Doctor Simon, I have a case where there's parental alienation, domestic violence allegations, all this type of stuff going on. You get retained to come in. What do you do? What sh what is your first step in a case when one side hires you to come in and take a look at what's going on. The most important thing I want to say up front, Mark, is that when I'm hired um, to be an expert for one side in a case, is that I undertake an objective, neutral review of the case and formulate my own opinions about the case with no deference to what I might think you would like me to think. In other words, I, I form my opinions independently. I then share. So you, so let, let's, let's, let's say that you call me and say, I've got a case. I'm defending a, a domestic violence restraining order. And um, I'll say to you, please don't tell me anything more about the case, Mark. I don't want to know what's going on in the case. I don't want, want to know your position. Um, send me all of the documents that you want me to review to give me the background on the case your 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 clients pleadings the mother's pleadings anything else that's been submitted to the court or not 
let me review those things and then let me share with you my thoughts and ideas and opinions about the case once I've done so. Then and only then can you tell me your client's point of view. So the first and most important thing with experts, retained experts, is that they operate with neutrality and with independence. So when I say neutrality, um, an expert is always neutral to outcome. An expert is not an advocate for the client whose attorney hired them. They're not there to tell the court that that client is correct. Which you now, don't want. I'll, I'll share from, from Chambers. I've had judges call evaluators, call professionals, wild cards, loose cannons, and it's in a good way. It means they trust their opinion because they don't answer to anyone. Well, especially, Mark, when, 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 when you hire me and your client spends a lot of money to hire me, um, I know as an expert that I have to overcome a presumption on the part of the other side and, more importantly, on the part of the court that my opinions have been bought and paid for. Okay? Yeah. So I have to be extra careful to be scrupulously neutral to outcome and to educate the court about the issues, not advocate for what the court should do. Because the so other side's going to ask and you're going to have to be on the record saying you were paid. I'm, I'm typically asked, Dr. Simon, what is your hourly rate and how much have you been paid to date? Okay. Yeah. And I'll quote my hourly rate and then I'll tell them how much I've been paid to date. And, you know, eyes will role because people like me are not inexpensive. Um, and um, so, you, you know, you have to be aware that these these questions are going to be asked. You need to answer them honestly and directly um, and un unapologetically. Um, and um, it's also important that you're able to, to say that you formed your opinions independently. That also means, by the way, so you ask what happens when you hire me? I tell you, Mark, I'm, after you hire me, I'm going to form some opinions. Your client and you, when I form the opinions, may or may not find them helpful. If you find them helpful, you'll probably designate me as your expert witness and call me to the witness stand. If you don't find them helpful, we'll probably shake hands, say goodbye, and maybe I'll hear from you on the next case. But you're probably not going to put me on the witness stand. And um, I have to be really, really clear that um, I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I'm here to tell you what I really think. Because that's the only thing that I have to assure my credibility. And so the court can, and you want that because when you, when your client hires me and spends a lot of money on my, on my fees, you want to make sure the court receives the educative testimony well, and, and, and that they don't think it's coming from a, a bought and paid for guy. And, yeah. and unfortunately, unfortunately, there are witnesses whose opinions you can buy. Mm -hmm. So buyer beware, caveat emptor, always. Um, by the way, that goes particularly true for the DV and the alienation advocates. You can buy their opinions because they only have one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so then um, sometimes, um, uh, I'm deposed um, prior to trial, um, but not always. 
Um, and, and sometimes what happens instead of my being an expert witness is you may hire me to assist you in preparing your case and putting your case on in writing questions for experts in um, actually assisting you with your advocacy for your client. And I can do that as long as I don't testify or give input to the court in any way. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the more common scenarios is I get a call from a lawyer who says, you know, we just got the report from Dr. Smith, the child custody evaluation from Dr. Smith. We're not happy with the outcome. Can you review this evaluation and let us know what your opinions of it are? And that's a very common entry point for me. Yeah, that that's that's honestly, I think, in terms of when you get that in California, 730 or 3111 back, if it's not favorable, you got to call someone and say, hey, um, we need to take a look and see, is this sound? What what was done wrong? What what would we have changed in terms of the evaluation looking back on it? Well, when you say what was done wrong, you're making a presumption. What if anything was done wrong is the right question because it may not have been done wrong. Yeah. It may just be that your the, the opinions of the evaluator about your client aren't pleasing to your client, but they are what they are and they were arrived at properly. Um, so um, with respect to custody evaluations, let me just add this. There is no such thing as a perfect evaluation. Each and every evaluation has flaws, has strengths. Um, and so the, whether there's flaws in the evaluation is not the question. The question is whether the flaws amount to very much, whether they matter because they're going to be there because it's a human work product and human beings make mistakes. Yeah, I, I completely agree because you get those, what, what are sometimes 40 and 50 page evaluations. Um, the evaluator a lot of times has spent a lot of time drafting that up, but there's no way it can be perfect. Um, as um, when I hear you, by, by the way, when I hear you say 40 to 50 pages, I smile because in many jurisdictions, reports are 100, 150, 200 pages. Talk about a minefield, right? I, I don't know how that's helpful. I don't know how a 40 page evaluation is helpful. Well, we can talk about that some other time. Um, I, there's, <laughs> yeah. Again, as with most things, there's pluses and minuses. Yeah, definitely, definitely the nuance piece. But I think I think my, mine from the attorney side is if it's forty or fifty pages, how much of it is the judge truly taking in when they read it? That's right. Do they just go to the back of it, read the recommendations, and 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 kind of go home? We don't know. Yeah. So you ready? You want to take a question or two here before Love we head to. out? Love to. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of preface this one. I'm gonna pare it down because it's it's quite a long question from Mark here. So um, essentially, what what Mark's asking here is what um, and I'll take that off there since it's blocking our face. But what have you seen uh, since COVID started and the impact in the resist refuse? Well, that's a great question. Um, at the very beginning of this pandemic, back in you know the, the late winter and spring, early summer of 2020, um, I, we saw a lot of situations where a parent refused to facilitate children transitioning between homes because of a fear of COVID. 
Um, and we saw this even more in cases where the, the parents didn't live in the same geographic area and some kind of um, uh, flying or train or some kind of transportation was needed. And the courts um, didn't have any, there, were no, there was no precedent and the courts were closed except for emergencies. Um, and, you know, different counties handled things differently. So COVID was uh, invoked in a number of cases to uh, limit the amount of time a kid would spend with a parent per the court orders. That is to say, the court order said, this is what you'll do, but it didn't happen that way because of, because of one parent's thinking about things during COVID. It especially was um, a lightning rod um, when, um, you know, when, when masking began. And so, um, you know, a, a parent would say, well, mom doesn't have the mask up and I'm not going to send the kids to mom's house or mom's around her parents and her parents won't mask up. And then we had another kind of spate of that when vaccines began and certain people yeah. got vaccinated and unvaccinated. It's still a knot that I think we're untying because there, there can be situations in which a parent's concerns about a child's health are legitimate because of COVID. A child who might be at risk or a parent who might have a job. I mean, I had a case where um, the mother was an emergency room physician and the father was in, in the business world. Um, so the mother had to go to work every day in an emergency room. What was walking into emergency rooms? COVID. The father refused to send the kids to mom because mom was exposed to COVID every day. There was a um, couple very famous issues that happened around doctors and nurses in family courts. So, but I would say in the cases I've seen where resist, refuse is present, um, I haven't seen COVID as the primary driver or source of the resist refuse. It might be um, something that has gotten, it may have made things get worse or it may be another tactic that's being used. Mm -hmm. All right, so we'll do, we'll do one more here and wrap up. And um, so we, we got a lot in the chat about, and this is a common topic, mental illness. Yeah. So, um, whether it be borderline personality disorders, narcissism, how does that play into the evaluation in uh, when you're going into a resist refuse situation? A great question. Um, I think in general, when it comes to forensic psychology work and the family courts, I think that these labels, these diagnostic labels, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic, blah, 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 these labels are not helpful what, because the labels are prejudicial and they, they paint a, a human being with a broad brushstroke. Mm -hmm. What we always are interested in is parenting behavior, parenting behavior, parenting behavior, parenting behavior. Example, uh, I know some excellent parents who have a history of hallucinations and delusions but they're under good treatment, they're taking medication, and their symptoms have diminished or disappeared. I know some parents without any psychiatric diagnosis who are not effective parents at all. 
Okay. So when you ask about narcissism, borderline, um, I don't find those terms helpful at all in my assessment of, uh, of a parent, of a child or a parent-child relationship. I look at parenting, parenting behaviors, judgment, reasoning, problem solving, empathy, rapport, attunement, um, and things like that. Um, those, that's what matters, not the label. Okay. I think, I think that's a, a, a very fair assumption because I I'm, I'm of the opinion. A lot of times those labels, um, get used too frequently and, and end up clouding the judgment on an actual, when you actually look into what's, what's going wrong with the situation. To, to use a term mark that you and I use, it's more prejudicial than probative. Mm -hmm. Um, which means that it, um, it, it's not, it, 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 it's more harmful than helpful in understanding the phenomena of interest. Um, and I would say that I would remind the, 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 the viewers that in our guidelines for at least for child custody evaluation, in our practice guidelines, we are cautioned not to make diagnoses or to rely on diagnostic labels. Now, if I've got a parent in a case of mine who's been previously diagnosed as XYZ, I may mention it, but I'm not going to use that diagnosis to guide my understanding of who the person is. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, we're coming up here on an hour. Uh, so Dr. Simon, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge with the viewers, um, maybe introducing a few to the, the resist, refuse, and, and what that means. Um, once again, I want to be super clear. This was something that uh, Dr. Simon is, like you said, child-centric. He, he works with both men and women uh, in these situations. And um, I hope all our viewers um, got some value out of, out of his wisdom. And you said 37 years, right? Some, uh, 37 years and um, a, a bit of gray hair, yes. Mm -hmm. A bit of gray hair. Awesome. And, and by the well, way, I, I should tell the viewers, I'm a dad. I have two adult sons. And I've been divorced. So um, I've been through some of this. And um, um, I, I get how hard it is to, to walk through these kinds of issues in our lives. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Some perspective on it. Um, thank you for coming on tonight. I'm going to let you, you get back. I, I assume you're in Maui, so you're going to go out to the beach or something right now and, and sip a pina colada. Uh, I'm not going to sip a pina colada. Um, you're correct. But I am going to go put on my sunscreen and go for my five mile beach walk. Yes. <laughs> Living the life. Thank you so much. And to our viewers, we'll be back next Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific uh, with Kansas attorney Jake Manback. We'll see everybody next week. Thank you, Mark.